And we're on page 607, Isaiah 9. We're going to read chapter, uh, verse 1 to 7. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this season. Thank you that we get to join a whole lot of Christians who are worshiping you, who are remembering your advent, who are remembering that you came. Without you coming, we wouldn't know you. We would know you enough to be responsible for our sins. I mean, the beauty of the world points to a creator. We would know something about you. But we sure wouldn't know you like we know you now because you came to be one of us and to reveal your plan of salvation to us. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for Joseph and Mary, for their faith. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to celebrate with our family. Amen. Amen. So Advent, today's Advent Sunday. It's the first Sunday of Advent. And what a lot of churches do is that they, they, they mark this period as a special t- period to remember that Jesus has come. That he's come. He came in the form of this, this little baby, right? In the manger. That's like the feeding trough for the animals. That, that God himself walked into human history. He broke in. He came down to us that he'd reveal himself to us. Because we agree with the philosophers that say, if there's a creator, if there's someone that much higher than us, then there's no way we could know him. We couldn't wrap our minds around him. And we say, yeah, that's true. In ourselves, we cannot reach up to God and understand him and say anything that is 100% accurate about God. But that doesn't mean that God isn't able to step in. That doesn't mean that God is limited. So this is how great God's power is. He limited himself. It's like, are the ants aware of us humans? God is way higher than we are to ants. And yet he values us and he loves us. And he came down, and he was what's called incarnated. The incarnation, think of, you know, you go to um, that, new, that new Mexican spot, right? You can get your tacos, carne, right? <laughs> Meat, flesh, steak, <laughs> right? That's carne. So in flesh, incarnation, God put on a human suit, that he would reveal himself to us and we wouldn't have to doubt. And you don't have to do this. This is not a law from scripture, but there's a rich tradition in the church to slow down and to celebrate this aspect of the story of God's salvation. And one of the ways that we do that in our home is we take... We have candles, and every single night, 
we light one of the candles. And we read some scripture, which I'm going to do for you right now. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those who who are living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered the, their oppressive yoke and the rod of, on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and, ev- and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end, and he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Word of the Lord. Amen. Let me give you a little background. Isaiah is this prophet who preached, who prophesied, who was a spokesman for God, who represented God's will. One way that prophets have been described as God's prosecutors of his people. Because in the Old Testament, the people called the Hebrews had this pattern. They would be stuck in oppression. There would be some nation that would beat them up and take them into captivity. I mean, I, can, I know you've seen Charleston Heston, right? <laughs> Standing before <laughs> the Red Sea with his staff and the, the water comes up, right? And God has this pattern of delivering his people again and again and again when they're in bondage. And then he prospers them and blesses them. And guess what? What's the first thing they do once they experience that prosperity and that blessing? Yeah. They're like, they're like this is great. Why do we need God? <laughs> and, and they start, they, they become spoiled. <laughs> and and they, they start to move down and become degraded and marry all the nations around them and, and disobey the one who saved them. And deliver them. Then guess what would happen? Another nation would come, (laughs) invade their land, beat them up, pull them into captivity, 
And the whole process would happen over and over again. Does that sound familiar? It should. <laughs> if you, you know, I would say if you are a parent, you know this experience. But I don't have to say that. If you're a human being <laughs> that's breathing, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know, we are all, you know, we all believe in God. They say there's no atheists in foxholes, right? Like when, the, when, when, when stuff's about to get real and you're desperate and you need help, you're crying out for mom and you're crying out for God. Yeah. But then when things smooth over and the waters are calm, you begin to think to yourself, I did this. I worked really hard for this. I'm good. And you stop leaning on God. This is something that we all experience. But Isaiah, he's speaking to his particular time, 700 years before Jesus would be born. And what you need to know about him is he started his ministry, he was commissioned for ministry the year King Uzziah died. And what happened was Israel, which was a tribe, was one of the tribes, right, that composed all the Hebrews. They were the people that lived in the northern lands. But there was this bad nation called Assyria that beat them up. I know you're like, why does there have to be a history lesson? Because the Bible's really old and you may not know this history, and you need to know some of it to be able to figure out what's going on. So I do got to give you a little history, okay? So... Assyria comes down and beats up Israel and takes them away. And guess what? Israel never comes back. Those, the, the people of Israel never come back. And in the south, there's a land that's called Judah. And there was this king called Hezekiah. And Hezekiah hated Assyria, and Assyria, which had already taken Israel, which was the northern kingdom, was threatening to take the southern kingdom, and he wanted to ally with the Babylonians. Because, you know, what do they say? You know, the enemy to my enemy is my friend. <laughs> so he, he comes over and he takes the, the king of Babylon to the house of God, shows him, all the jewels, all the gold, all the riches that they had in the kingdom. And guess what the Babylonians do? Yeah, they don't beat up the Assyrians. They come and they take the southern kingdom. <laughs> so now you've got Assyria took the northern kingdom and Babylon takes the southern kingdom. And that's what we're seeing in this passage, which you might miss if you're not familiar with the history. In verse 9, it talks about the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. These are parts of Israel which get lost to the Assyrians. They're also names of the sons of Jacob. He had 12 sons, and they all got different parts of the land. And they never return. Now, Isaiah is going to prophesy that Judah, the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, they're going to be restored. 
They're going to be renewed. They're going to come back 70 years after being captive to Babylon. There is hope. And Isaiah is a prophet who's speaking to their time, and he's talking about the hope that they're going to have. But here, and often in the Bible, what happens is is that prophets are talking about what's happening in this generation and the next generation, but they're also talking about what's going to happen way in the future. And now he's talking about this son that's not just born, but given by God, a gift of God to humanity. And guess what? He is going to have these four crazy names. The fourfold title of this anointed one, this Messiah, this person who would save his people. And then in the next couple weeks, next week, Ben... Honeyford, and the week after that, Dylan, they are going to break down these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now you tell me how you can be the Prince of Peace, but also the Everlasting Father. You tell me how you can be a wonderful counselor, but also mighty God and be a child that's mighty God. But 700 years before Jesus is even born, Isaiah is saying in verse 2 or verse 1, he's saying, by the Sea of Galilee, Who was born by the Sea of Galilee? Yeah. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus was born by the Sea of Galilee. So in darkness, confusion, and lostness, a light has dawned. And we're talking about this for the next couple weeks, that a light has dawned on the darkness. You know, Galilee, in Galilee, there's this little town called Nazareth, right? And... Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his apostles, guess what Philip says the first time he hears about Jesus? He says, can anything good, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? You know what Jesus says? Jesus isn't offended. Like, Like, we would be offended, right? If we go around and then somebody finds out, oh, you're from Gloucester City? Can anything good come from Gloucester City? We would all be offended. Like, well, you don't know, you know what I mean? We've got, there's some stuff going on, it's good. Like, you don't know about it, right? We would want to defend it. But Jesus says to Philip, he says, look, this, this guy, he says what he thinks. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's exactly what he said. And then he calls Philip to follow him. And get this, when Jesus asks you to follow him and you actually have ears to hear and eyes to see that's really Jesus, you don't say no. So this bum Nazarite, guy from Nazareth, you're like, oh, I see you completely different now. I'm going to follow you. In the land of darkness, in the land of gloom, a light is dawning. 
That's what we're celebrating for Christmas in this town that nobody cared about, that was on the fringes. You see, Nazareth was not supposed to be a place where a king was supposed to come from. Nazareth was not the kind of place where a king was supposed to come from. I have, I have a, 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 a brother-in-law who grew up in Lindenwald. And he talks about some of his family. He's like telling me, like, yeah, I got some, some family who like, kind of believe for real that the Cold War ended when Rocky Balboa fought Ivan Draco. <laughs> and like, kind of believe for real in pro wrestling. <laughs> if there was a place where Jesus came from, where people were considered hicks, right, it would have been Nazareth. It was a tiny town, barely in the borders of what you could be considered a true Hebrew, way out there. And you know what? It's so distinct that when they come, when all the disciples come to Jerusalem, you know what we see again and again in the Gospels? They say, we know that you're with Jesus because we can tell by your crazy accent. (laughs) You guys are from Galilee. (laughs) You guys are from the sticks. No, the king was not supposed to come from a town like Nazareth. And yet, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is even born, identifies this region. This is where the Messiah is going to come, the child who's going to be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You know, if Jesus were to come today, he probably wouldn't come to Center City. He probably wouldn't have been born in Cherry Hill. Probably wouldn't have born, he probably would have been born in like, if it was Jersey, he probably would have been born in like Paulsboro or Lindenwall or Gloucester City. To regular people with regular problems that seem forgotten and insignificant. The birth of Jesus in Galilee pronounces to the world that there are no insignificant places, there are no insignificant people, and there's no insignificant time. You and I have significance. Jesus consecrates all hick places, all places from the bottom to the top when he entered into this world. When God entered into the anthill, to become an ant, when God put on his flesh suit, right, and was a little baby that had the cry to marry to be fed, and was vulnerable, so vulnerable, in fact, that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph became refugees. And had to flee to Egypt. Because Herod heard that there was going to be this king that was born, and it threatened him. He's like, no, there's no other king but me. Okay? Caesar has me in charge of this land. I'm not trying to hear about this king being born out in the sticks. So, you know what? This is not a big deal. We will just kill all the male children born in the last couple years. And Jesus' family had to, had to flee. They were refugees in Egypt. 
Jesus pronounces in his life that all these people who are displaced in the world today, who are refugees, who are without a home, that he identifies with them, that he is with them. He's with you. He's with them. If you don't see yourself in Jesus, you're missing it. If you don't see Jesus in the refugee, if you don't see Jesus in the displaced, if you don't see Jesus in the vulnerable, you're missing it. 700 years before Jesus was born, Jesus saw the light. You know, it's funny. It's like the wise men coming from the east, right? They saw the light in the skies, and they had to come. Isaiah saw light by the Spirit, and he was able to see some things like where this Messiah would be born, and even more as we go through, if we were to study the whole book of Isaiah, he saw the light of Jesus. Now I want to ask you, they saw, he saw the light hundreds of years before. People on the other side of Asia saw the light in Jesus' day. Do we see the light 2,000 years after the light has come? Do you see the light yourself? Do you see the light of Jesus? Like I said, Ben and Dylan are going to preach in the next couple of weeks. They're going to talk about this fourfold titled Messiah. And we're going to sit down, we're going to simmer and think about how God, how Jesus becomes a wonderful counselor to us, the mighty God for us, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, to center our souls on this coming Messiah during this time. Now, if you have like something like an iPhone, or if you've been like paying attention at all to some of the trends that's happening, one of the big things that's happening, I have an iPhone, and on it is under the uh, fitness app, is have you spent your time in mindfulness today? Mindfulness. What is this? Mindfulness, centering yourself, to distress yourself, to be healthy. And what mindfulness is, is this this ancient Buddhist practice that's been, you know, kind of stripped of its Buddhism and and, and presented in in a secular form. And here's the thing, before I I get into it, we look at the world and we say, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. There are two books that tell us about God, the the Bible teaches us. The one book is nature. Nature tells us about God. You are outside. If you were outside tonight when the sun was setting, it was beautiful. It was clear. The colors were amazing. It wasn't crazy cold. It was like, this is a nice early December evening. There is an artist behind this beauty. Now, that book is infallible, an infallible representation of God. You're like, you might be thinking, well, how? Because, you know, people disagree and there's science talks, you know, what does science say about all this stuff? Just because people disagree on the interpretation of the facts 
doesn't make the facts infallible. The same thing that we believe with the Word of God, that it is an infallible representation of God's will and Word to us. And you might be thinking, well, there's all these denominations. There's all these different types of Christians. They disagree about left and right. Yeah, (laughs) Up and down, they disagree about everything. Now, our fallibility doesn't mess up the infallibility of God's Word. Just because we don't have the infallible interpretation doesn't mean that, that the Word of God does not have authority. That's like saying, you know, the red light, you got to stop at the red light, and you're like, well, when did it really turn red? I interpret that different than you, Mr. Police Officer. No. (laughs) You can try that. It's not going to work really well for you. (laughs) There is an infallible authority from God's word. And you know what? Instead of having the attitude of like, well, you know what? Different people are kind of pushing the line and flying through when it's yellow or getting when it's changing in the middle of the road. Instead of having that kind of attitude, which my wife will tell you, I kind of do sometimes. (laughs) When it comes to God's word, we ought to be like, oh, it's yellow. Let me slow down and stop as soon as I can. Let me be really careful, because this authority is God's authority. You might be taken back and just be like, I don't know about that, but I'm saying this will lead not to a conclusion of arrogance, but to one of humility. It's not saying, oh, I know what God's word says, and so I'm going to beat up everybody else around me that disagrees with me. No, you're like, this is what in my conscience I believe God's word to say, and I want to rearrange my life around that truth. And I hope and pray that other people, that they would come alongside and they would grow in the truth. And, and, and I know that I don't see it perfectly, but I'm striving to understand it. And I want to obey God and I want to please Him. But you're not worried and paralyzed. Oh, people disagree about what's right and wrong and all this stuff. So therefore, I get to do whatever I want. No. You're just going to wreck your life. Slow down on the yellows. Respect God's word. It's his infallible will to us. In terms of mindfulness, though, I just want to challenge that a little bit from God's word, from an understanding of God's word that I have. The practice that Christians ought to employ is thoughtfulness. You're like, what? You're just talking semantics, Pastor. Like, this is just, (laughs) what's the difference? The, well, the spe- secular spin on Buddhism that's mindfulness that's on your app, you know, and is talked about and is in the newspaper and is really, really popular, is this idea that you need to slow down. You need to practice these breathing routines. You need to de-stress. And, and listen, a lot of that I'm really okay with, and we should be okay with. And we want to, like I said, all truth is God's truth, right? So... I don't have to understand cell signals to use my cell phone. I don't have to understand how a car works completely to use my car. I don't have to agree with the worldview of the person who designed my car. 
And I'd say, well, you rejected God's authority, so I will not drive this car. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what we're called to. All truth is God's truth. And so, yes, there's some things we can learn about breathing and slowing ourselves down. But here's the problem. And listen to me. Your mind, your heart, your soul, you, that's where the problem is. If all we had to do is quiet ourselves, calm ourselves down, and then we would just be good, that would mean that really just all the bad is our environment all around us. And that's true, right? There's a lot of junk around us. But the problem's also in you. And despite whatever Disney movie you ever watched, follow your heart is a terrible, terrible advice. Don't just follow your heart. That's a recipe to ruin your life. This world and you needed a savior from the outside. You and me are like the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. We are in gloom. We need a light to come from the outside. You might be thinking like, well, I read that we are the light of the world. Shouldn't we embrace our light? But this is why it's good sometimes to have a teacher, to have a pastor, because if you go and you read that in the original language, you're going to realize that it's not the same word when the Bible describes in John that Jesus is the light of the world. And then in John, in, first John, uh, in the first chapter of John, it says that the light of men, that Jesus is the light of men. And then in Matthew, when Jesus says, you be the light of the world, he uses a completely different word where he's talking about be a lamp. Not the source of light. You have a lamp that you need Jesus to light first. <laughs> then you hold it out to the world. But you're not holding out your own goodness. You're not holding out. You're not like, well, I meditated and I slowed down and I did all the proper breathing stuff and I'm trying to be a really good person. That's how I hold my light out. No, you're saying... I live in the land of gloom and darkness, and a light has dawned, and that light, it ain't me, it ain't my goodness, it's Jesus Christ, who I needed to come into my life. Let me end with this. Maybe this Christmas you're feeling this darkness, and maybe you're not. Maybe this Christmas you're feeling it's just seasonal effect disorder, right? Sad. Um... That's the abbreviation for seasonal effect disorder. Maybe, though, it's deeper than that, and you are beginning to realize that I need the light of Jesus in my life. Maybe you're beginning to realize the same way that Jesus was in history 2,000 years, born into this world, that I need him to be born in my heart. I need this to be real. I want to invite you. Over the next couple of weeks, when Brother Dylan and Ben really break down this fourfold title and describe who this Messiah is, I want to invite you for the next couple of weeks to meditate 
And that's why I say thoughtfulness. Mindfulness gives this idea of empty your mind, breathe slow, be aware. That's only half the process. There's a whole bunch of people in your life you've got to think about. You don't get to just ignore them and just be you and yourself in a perfect peace. And more than all the people you need to think about and care about, that's the call of the Christian life. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. It's not aesthetic. It's not you up on the hill alone finding your peace. It's you in the valley, in your row home, wherever you are, and like knowing and loving and walking with your neighbors even when it's messy. But beyond all that, it's also you knowing God. And the whole point of like lighting these candles and praying, reading the word. So we have this little thing where a handful of people signed up. We send you a text every day. And if you want that, just let me know. We'll send you one too. And you just go and you go into God's word every single day. And you just have these rituals that help build your relationship. Some Christians are like, I don't like any rituals at all. And I get that. The funnest parts of a relationship are the spontaneous parts, right? Like the funnest parts of a marriage is like that like weekend, somebody took your kids and you're doing the happy dance. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're like, yeah, it's the weekend. And you go out and you have a ball, right? Like that's the funnest part of like that kind of relationship. But no marriage survives without the ritual, So the love of 13 years of meals together every day with my wife and praying together and things that weren't like glamorous and romantic and spontaneous, right? That's what a relationship is built on. And it's the same thing with God. And what I want to say to you is these times, Advent, Lent, these times, they can be tools. They can be terrible masters if you think you're going to please God by doing this. They'll be terrible masters if you think, I'll earn God's favor if I do all the right stuff. And that's what a lot of churches kind of give the impression of. Like, you better do all the right repentance. You better... Get, do it all exactly the right way, and that's how God's going to be happy with you. Forget that. That's not what God's Word says. <laughs> but you do these things to build your relationship. I want my kids to grow up. Every year, they have lit candles, prayed. We sing carols every night for Christmas. We talk about the meaning of God's Word, and they have a chocolate after, <laughs> and they get to hang the little ornament on the tree that represents whatever the story we're doing is. And we're building memories. I encourage you, not just for Advent, but through your life, to make God a part of it and have rituals that build your relationship. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for tonight. God, thank you for gathering us together. Thank you for those who would listen to this online, who couldn't make it. Lord, thank you, God, for the time that I got to spend studying this passage and how it fed my soul. Lord, bless us. Help us to see you for who you are. And in the next couple weeks leading up to Christmas, as we study this and get really, really narrow in to these four titles of you, Lord, help us to see you for who you are and be blown away 
by your love and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we just got a couple announcements. I want to remind you that um, that green box back there is our offering box. And anything that you give, what happens is we use it to bless people in Gloucester. Now, you're probably aware enough to know that like, what we give as a community isn't enough to, to support all the things we're doing. And Paul, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 8.11, or 1 Corinthians 8.11, <laughs> one of those, he says, I rob other churches. <laughs> He's being ironic. <laughs> I rob other churches so that I can minister to you freely. And that's what's happening right now. We're in a season where we're launching, we're pioneering, and I go around and I share what God's doing here, and we, 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 we take offerings, and other churches support what we're doing. But at the same time, it's really important that we have the habit of generosity right here. Because one day, one day, we, Gloucester needs a community that not only supports itself, but is generous and supports work outside of Gloucester. That's my prayer. Okay, so there's the offering box back there. We don't beat you up, you know, about it. We don't have, like, the deacon come down and, like, wait for you to give, like, with the pole and, like, hit you <laughs> when you don't. You know what I'm saying? I, don't, you know, I know you've never experienced anything like that, but I have. And, uh, but you can also give online. And uh, you see there you can keep up with our stuff by text and by email. So we have a few events coming up. Pit Finney's Christmas Shop. Thank you for people who have been donating. We have gotten quite a bunch of stuff. Like, we got a bunch of things. And the idea is on the 16th at 11, which is a Saturday, kids are going to come. They're going to get to get anything they want for free for some of their family members. And then their parents or their guardians or their grandmas or whoever, or their family's going to come up, and they're going to be able to get stuff for the kids. And they're going to be paying like a dollar, 50 cents, three dollars, five dollars for stuff that's worth much more than that, that's been donated. And then all the money is going to be used for the continual pastor, I need a, I need a bus money, <laughs> pastor, like, we have no food in the house. You know what I mean? Whatever. The, the, the emergency needs that come up on a regular basis. It'll all go to benevolence in Gloucester City. We want to meet needs, but with dignity. We want the families that come in, we want to spend time with them here, rather than just dropping off you know, a bag of toys. And we want to talk to them and minister to them as well and believe that for some people, it's, it's really spiritually really good for them if they contribute something in getting the, you know, the gifts for their kids. And also we have a family movie night. Talked about that before. That's going to be really fun. That's the Friday before that. Um, old classic movies. Talk about the meaning of Christmas. Uh, make gingerbread houses. Got the book study starting. Let me know if you're interested. I will get you the book ahead of time. It's not a big deal if you just show up and haven't read anything. Because the first night I'm going to do an introduction. And it's not going to be like, you didn't do your homework. <laughs> you should feel really bad. Stop. Stop. I will bang on the wall. <laughs> it's time. 
and you will direct yourself right next to next door where we live. Um, that's right. Our street is one way now. Let me pray for our meal and let's let's enjoy it together. God, thank you so much for our kids. Thank you so much for the opportunity they had today to write cards to those who've been sitting in prison, some of them for six months, a year, two years, three years, in China, India, the Middle East. Lord, I pray that they would get these, these cards from our kids here in Gloucester City. And so many times they get out and they talk about how they have got all these cards. And that just seeing like a colorful, crayoned little picture, um, something bright, something that wishes them Merry Christmas, something that says that God loves them, that it would lift up their soul. And uh, Lord, we pray just for everyone that this would be a season where we connect to you in a deeper way. That ritual wouldn't replace our relationship, but it would serve our relationship with you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.